I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can pull one out of the pew in front of you, the Black Bible, and Hosea 5 is on page 642, 642 in the Pew Bible. Sure, most of us have probably seen those street preachers who hold up a big sign that says something like, turn or burn. That's not the most attractive message. It's not something that immediately necessarily grabs us and says, yeah, I like that. Um, There may be more delicate ways of putting it, but in one sense, there's truth in it. The scripture is not afraid of the word repentance, which effectively means turn, nor is it afraid of the consequences of sin, which is effectively perishing. And so we may be aghast at the methodology, we may be aghast at the the demeanor of the person holding the sign, we may not think of it as the most tactful approach, we may not think it wins the most people to Christ, and those all may be true, but we can't turn away from the fundamental message of Scripture, which is a message of repentance. Scripture calls us to turn back to God. That's not a bad message. It's a really, really good one because when you turn back to God, you come to a God who is loving, compassionate, kind, good, and wise. God is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. His ways are so good and so pure and so perfect that it makes the ways of the world look like rubbish and refuse. And so the message of repentance is not an evil one. It is really a good one. And as we work our way through the book of Hosea, we find a book that is not afraid to call out the consequences of sin and call people to repent. And it does this because it realizes the God whom has been left behind Hosea knows that the God who has been turned away from is a God who persistently pursues an adulterous and rebellious people. The centerpiece of the book of Hosea, the core of the book is found in chapter 3, which is a description of a God who will go and love a group of people who have been like an unfaithful wife. That's the kind of God that the people of Israel and really the people of the world are called to turn back to, a God who will take back an adulterous bride. That's a loving God. And so the message of repentance in Hosea, yes, it's stark, yes, it's severe, but we've got to keep it in context and understand who we are being called to turn back to. It's a good God. When Jesus began preaching... His opening message was very simple, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His very first word was repent. As he preached that message, he expected the people that he was preaching to to understand what he meant by that. He didn't go at length to define it. And so as we look for a definition of repentance, we can look to the Old Testament, which Jesus was saturated with. Jesus held the Old Testament higher than any of us in this room have in our life. And so we want a good working understanding of repentance. 
And so we go to Hosea to look for it. Let me give you one lengthy definition of what repentance is. This comes from the 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He describes repentance this way. He says, repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hellbound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook, as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest in the whole world may call you a fool or say you have a religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. We get a picture of repentance when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son who left his father and ended up squandering his inheritance on every type of profligate lifestyle. And yet he came to his senses and realized that his father and those who lived with his father were better off than he was. And he decided that he would go back to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's a picture of repentance. But Charles Spurgeon comments quite wisely about this. He says, a great portion of modern revivalism, talking about uh, a spirit of the age where a lot of people supposedly were coming to Christ, he says a great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery, restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. So we have to understand repentance involves acknowledging your sin. It is insufficient dealing with sin that leads to an insufficient repentance, repentance which leads to a defective salvation. And you only need to look to the book of Hosea to see a people who consider that they have some relationship with God, but don't deal rightly with their sin, and so their relationship with God is actually one that is completely defunct. The book of Hosea will really grab us by our throat and hold on to us, but it does so mercifully because if we don't rightly understand our sin, then there's no hope of rightly repenting. And if there's no right repentance, then there's no access to God and his forgiveness. And so I want to give to you this morning four important truths about God's ways so that you will have a real repentance. But before I get into these truths, let me give you a bit of a historical backdrop to what's going on in Hosea. This book that you have in your hands is about 2,700 years old. And so it's time, it's people, very different than ours, and we need to understand that in order to rightly unpack this text. So let me give you this kind of backdrop, and it involves a story of alliances, of wars, of intrigue, and conspiracies. The time of Hosea happens at a time where there was a war going on. It was called the Syro-Ephraimite War. And the setting of this is during a time where there was an empire that was on the rise. It was the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire. 
That was an empire that was east of Israel. It was coming back into prominence. And as far as a country goes, it would look like a country with fangs. It was ferocious. It was ready to devour everyone in its path. Assyria was known for its brutality. It was known for flaying people alive. It was brutal in its conquest of other nations. And so the setting of this book is during the uprising of this empire, the Assyrian Empire. And during this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom known as Ephraim or Israel, and there's the southern kingdom known as Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, made an alliance with its northern neighbor, Syria. Don't get it confused with Assyria. Sorry, I didn't make up the names. There's Assyria to the east, and there's Syria to the north. Israel made an alliance with Syria to the north. During this time, Israel had a king named Menahem. You can read about him in 2 Kings 15. In fact, I had you turn to Hosea, but that was a little premature. You can turn with, with me back to 2 Kings. Sorry, I don't know what page that is in the Pew Bible, but you can flip back until you get to 2 Kings chapter 15. Israel has a king named Menahem, and he was the king of Israel from 746 B.C. to 737 B.C. And it says that during his reign in 2 Kings 15, 19 to 20, Paul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver, that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So in other words, this king of Israel, Menahem, has Assyria come against him and he pays him off. And Assyria turns around and says, okay, I'll take payment instead of conquering you. And now Israel is under the the vassalage of Assyria. They have to pay their dues to Assyria every year, and it's a hefty due. Menahem required the elite of the nation, probably about 60,000 wealthy residents, to pay 50 shekels of silver. It's a hefty tax that they all of a sudden had to pay in order to keep Assyria off their backs. Well, Menahem died, and his son Pekahiah reigned in his place, and he only reigned two years because he was assassinated by a man named Pekah, who conspired with him with 50 men, against him with 50 men from Gilead. You see that in 2 Kings 15, 25. It says, And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria. And he reigned in his place. So there's an assassination That happened. And this may have been motivated by the fact that they didn't like paying tribute to Assyria. Assyria had left. And it seemed to be there's no imminent threat of danger. And so this man named Pekah rose up with 50 others and deposed the king and took the throne in its place. And they began this anti-Assyrian alliance with the nation of Syria to try to fortify themselves against the terror from the east. And so there they were, no longer paying their dues to Assyria, with a new king on the throne, looking like they're mighty and tough, but they want to fortify themselves. 
And they see that Assyria has its sights set on Egypt to the south. So geography is important here. You've got Egypt, then you've got Judah, then you've got Israel, and then you've got Syria, and you've got Assyria coming against those nations, and they're heading towards Egypt. And so you can see Israel and Syria want to make an alliance with Judah to protect themselves from Assyria that's coming towards Egypt. You get this. Makes sense, right? You can think along these lines. Well, Judah didn't want to play. They didn't want to ally with them. And so Syria and Israel decided that they were going to depose of the king of Judah and put their own king in place. You can read about this in Isaiah chapter 7. But the Lord didn't permit that to happen. And they were thwarted in doing that. And so Judah was not part of the alliance. You just have Israel and Syria in the north, a part of this alliance. We'll look over at 2 Kings chapter 16, 5 through 9. It says, The Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, sent messengers to Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So now it gets complicated. Judah makes an alliance with Assyria and says, come help me against Israel and Syria. It's pretty complex, but I hope that you're able to follow along and see what's happening here. Verse 8 of 2 Kings 16, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin, that is the king of Syria. So now you've got Assyria conquering Syria, and now it's close to Israel. And if you just flip back to 2 Kings 15, you'll see what happens to Israel. 2 Kings 15, 29 By the way, Kings doesn't always go in strictly chronological order. But you read in 2 Kings 15.29, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilasar, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel, Beth, Maacah, Jonah, Kedesh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So now Israel has been taken by Assyria, and only the southern portion of Israel is left, Ephraim. And now the king of uh, Israel, Pekah, is deposed in verse 30. Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Another assassination. Another king, Hosea, comes up to reign. But then you read about a Hosea. He first plays with Assyria, and then he tries to get an alliance with Egypt, and then Assyria comes and wipes out Israel. All of this back and forth, all of these alliances, all of these nations, all of this going on, all of these political intrigues, these assassinations, and this sets the stage for our text. Turn with me now to Hosea. 
chapter 5. Now we know what's going on behind the scenes, or really just right on the surface, while Hosea is preaching to the people of Israel. The background that we've just laid out with the political decisions and ramifications are now seen in the text. Look with me at Hosea 5, and I'll just skim through some of this so you can see. Verse 8, it says, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon, and we follow you, O Benjamin. It means that war is coming. Sound the alarm, sound the trumpet, because there are attackers on their way. Verse 9, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. Chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. Chapter 7, verse 1, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Verse 7, all of them are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. And listen to this, as you think about what was happening in Israel and all of this intrigue, all of this back and forth, all of these conspiracies and alliances, the summary of it all, as all of this stuff is going on on the political surface, the thing that's underneath of it all, as kings are devoured, it says, none of them calls upon me. That's Hosea's point. For all that's going on, all the disasters coming, the country with fangs. No one is calling upon the Lord. All they can see is the superficial. All they can see are nations and chariots and horses and alliances. And they don't see the Lord behind it. And they continue on with their sin and they call out to other countries for help. In 7 verse 9, it says, Strangers devour his strength, referring to Ephraim. And they get devoured. 7 verse 11, Ephraim is like a silly dove, silly and without sense. Remember, Ephraim is that lone tribe that's really left of the northern kingdom. They're calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. 7.16 says, Their princes shall fall by the sword. Because this people is so wrapped up in the superficial, they can't see the supernatural. Because of that, they will fall by the sword. That's why the message of repentance is so important. Because they need to be called back to God. And so let's unpack some of the truths that we need to see of God's ways so that we will understand repentance rightly. The first truth is that God's discipline is to be heeded, not rejected. 
As you read the Old Testament, God consistently disciplined his people by sending warring nations and people against his people so that they would be alert again to their God and call out to him for help. And so as they live in this land of Israel, which was a gift to them, they were to be awakened when invaders came in and say, hey, something's up. We're not living right with our God. We need his help. We need to turn back to him. We've gone our wrong ways. It says in chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. It pictures the people of Israel like Adam in the garden who was given the command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they go and eat of it. Or Adam goes and eat of it. And Israel does the same thing. They give, are given clear instructions by God. And they act faithlessly. And so God sends a nation to them that will war against them to wake them up. 7.11 says... Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread, my, spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. The point is this. God recognizes that his people are as silly and as senseless as a dove, that means they have really no heart. That's literally what it says. They have no heart. They have no power in them to make the right and wise decision in the face of evil. And so they go off the wrong way. And what God says he will do is he will be like a trapper who spreads his net over the bird to try to restrain them from going off in the wrong direction. And he puts them in a tight spot by bringing nations against them to kind of corral them, to show them, look, you need to go back to the Lord. There's nothing else that will get you out of this trouble. You need to turn back to the Lord. He kind of traps them, as it were. And this is a discipline. He puts them in a tight spot. Some of you may have experienced the Lord's discipline at times. You've not had a warring nation come against you, but you've just had some rough things happen some things that you would not have chosen to happen in your life. And maybe the Lord putting you into a tight spot so you really have nowhere else to turn but back to him. It says in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father of the son in whom he delights. And so the essence of situations where repentance is needed is a loving God who puts you you into a corner so you have nowhere else to turn. But here's the response of Israel. It says in verse 13, they have strayed from me. They have rebelled against me. They speak lies against me. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart. Verse 14, at the end, they rebel against me. Verse 15, they devise evil against him. Discipline came, and they refused to turn to the Lord. They needed to confess to the Lord and acknowledge their guilt in turning away from him. But instead of doing this, they saw their wound, they saw their illness, and they turned to other nations for help. We need to very seriously understand that all of our true needs, 
all the things that we really and desperately need can only be provided by the Lord. And when we turn to other things in other ways for those things that we need, we are resisting the opportunity that we have to repent. What happens when discipline has come and has been repeatedly rejected? What will happen? Well, here's the second truth about God's ways. It's that God's wrath cannot be deterred by outside help. God's wrath cannot be deterred by outside help. What the people of Israel and the people of Judah ultimately missed was that their dealings were not ultimately with Assyria, but with God. And because they repeatedly rejected the Lord's discipline and did not repent, they would face his wrath. And here's the simple lesson, is when you find that God is your enemy, no one can be your ally. When you discover that it's really God who is against you, there is nobody and nothing that can help you. You have no allies. Chapter 5, verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. That was a horrible offense in Old Testament Israel. It'd be like if you picked up a surveyor's stake and you moved it so that you, it looked like you had more property. It's effectively stealing. It's denying somebody else's rights and trying to get that for your advantage. And so they became like those who moved the landmark. They were probably taking land that was not their own. They were acting in this unjust way. And God says, upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. The wrath of God is something that we should think about with trembling. He describes it as something that he pours out like water. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 11 says, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. This idea of pouring out wrath is something like we encounter in 1 Samuel 1.15 when Hannah is praying. It says, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And so as God's wrath is poured out, it's something that comes from him. It is his just anger against sin. We have a hard time understanding wrath because usually when we encounter somebody's wrath in this world, it's unjust, it's wrong, it's unfair, it's not good. You may experience it from a spouse or from a boss or from a neighbor where someone just goes on a tirade and they just are belligerent and you think, man, that is the most unfair, unhealthy thing I've ever seen. God's wrath is not like that. It is not some belligerent, uninstigated tirade that has no foundation in justice. God's wrath is entirely based on justice. 
He is a personal judge who feels indignation every day against the people who he has created for a relationship with him and yet have smeared his name, lied against him, rebelled against him, denied him in his ways, and he feels the pain of that rebellion that people have committed against him, and he will pour out his wrath like water upon those people. Justly. Because it is what is deserved in the governance of this universe. It's not an angry neighbor. It's not a grumpy boss. It is a righteous judge who will do what is right. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. We also must not think of God's wrath as coming just at the drop of the hat. God is patient, and his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. The first time that you sinned against God, it would be entirely right of God to judge you. That's not the way God works. He doesn't see you sin and immediately dump a gallon of wrath on you. He's patient. He waits. He gives opportunity for repentance. But God's wrath is what we ultimately need to be reckoned with, reckoning with. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1 that Jesus Christ came to save us from the wrath of God. Jesus knows what God's wrath is. And he came to save us from it, to spare us it. The problem for Israel and for Judah is in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, those words describe a serious sickness where there doesn't seem to be any hope of recovery. It describes a wound that is oozing, that needs to be bound up, but really no doctor has the ointment for it. It's that kind of wound. And so it's not a physical wound, it's a spiritual wound. They know that they have something wrong. There's a problem. They feel sick. They feel the pain. They feel Assyria coming. They know that there's a problem. And where do they go? Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, both Israel and Judah, sent to Assyria, the very nation that threatened to destroy them, they sent to him for help. But verse 13 says, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Why is that? Why can't Assyria heal the wound of Judah and Israel? simply because of this. Assyria is not the real enemy in this situation. The truth is, God was sending Assyria to discipline his people. And so you cannot go to Assyria for help when your problem is with God. And that was the problem. It says in Isaiah chapter 10 that Assyria was the tool of the Lord. It says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? In other words, Assyria was the tool that God was wielding against his people, Israel. 
And so their problem was with the Lord, and the Lord draws us out in verse 14. It says four of chapter 5, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Okay, in what way will God be like a lion to the people there? He says, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. God is the lion who comes to destroy. And so they cannot have Assyria help them in that. Assyria cannot stand as a mediator between Israel and God and stop God from devouring Israel. They just can't. They don't have the weapons. They don't have the power, the strength. God is the lion who will tear and go away. And he says, no one shall rescue. Do you realize that if God is your enemy, there is nobody who can be your savior. The reason for that is that God declares that he alone is the savior. The brilliant solution to this, the amazing reality, is that although God is your enemy because of your sin, If you call out for him to be your savior, he will no longer be your enemy, but he will be your ally and your friend. Don't you know Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On one side of it, you could say, if God is against you, no one is for you. But on the other side of things, if you repent, and find yourself putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is so bold as to declare, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So it's terrible news that if God is your enemy, no one can be your friend. But if God is your friend, no one can ultimately be your enemy to destroy you. That's why we need to repent. Don't go to the nations. Don't go to the other things that offer you help. Go to the God who is eager to save. There is no savior besides God. God's wrath is undeterred by help from the nations. But when you have his help, no one can take that from you. That's why God wanted Israel and Judah to place their trust in him, to see that work. The third truth is that God's judgment comes on the proud. God's judgment comes on the proud. It's really not small things that angers God. We, we tend to use the, the phrase, and I even alluded to it just a few moments ago, that You know, based on just the smallest sin, God will send somebody to hell. Did you steal a lollipop when you were in first grade? God's going to send you to hell. Well, it's not good to steal a lollipop when you're in first grade. Don't do that, first graders. But that's not really the way the Bible describes our sin. The Bible looks at our sin as a whole disposition that is against God, against his help. It's a whole condition that we possess that says we don't want the creator of us in our lives. 
is much more serious than just stealing a lollipop. Stealing a lollipop is an example of that disposition that we don't want to live under God and his ways. It's our human condition. It's our sinfulness. That's the problem we have. We have God's law written on our conscience, and yet we resist it. We go against it. The way that God would have us live, we live totally contrary to it. We forget his ways. And you can read through this text at a later time and just see all the ways that this people have rebelled against God. It's kind of summarized in the fact that the kings of Israel, they had nine different dynasties since Solomon. Six of the final kings, there were four assassinations in the average reign of the kings of Israel was five years because of these assassinations and just this turnover. And it just shows that the wickedness of the people was demonstrated in the lives of the leadership. Despite all that evil of the people, despite all the wickedness that was possessed of them, they would still worship. They would still offer worship to God. They would go with their sacrifices and try to worship the God that they are at present rebelling against. And so God says in chapter 6, verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The people who are full of sin would come to the Lord with this superficial religion. They'd offer a sacrifice, but their love, it says in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 4, for God was like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. They didn't love God. Their love evaporated as soon as the sun came up. And yet they would go and they'd bring these sacrifices just out of ritual to the Lord. But God says, I don't desire that. He wants steadfast love and not sacrifice. The reason why the people had this problem, thinking they could come to God, sinful, and yet not sacrificing from the heart, was because they were proud. 7 verse 9 says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Here's the key verse. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. You notice that Israel is wasting away in their strength. Their muscles are atrophied, but they still think they're the world's strongest man. Their hair is turning gray, but they still think they have the strength of youth. They're proud. They're so proud, they don't even recognize their own weakness. If you would concede the point, you would acknowledge that you're a lot like Israel in that regard. We're so proud, we don't even see our blind spots. You can probably meet or talk to somebody who met you for about five minutes, and they could tell you your blind spots, but you won't acknowledge it. If you have any questions about what your blind spots are, I'd be happy to talk with you. (laughs) 
Do you know what my blind spots are? You don't need to talk to me. (laughs) We have this misunderstanding of ourselves. We think we're stronger than we are. We think that we're younger than we are in our strength, our spiritual pride. Our pride blinds us. It keeps us from knowing how weak we are at times. But the wise man receives the blow of a friend, and so we should listen to those times where we are encountered with our weakness and acknowledge it rather than double down and say, no, I'm not. We should listen humbly. We wonder, have there been any gray hairs that have crept into our spiritual life that we seem to be unaware of? Has prayerlessness crept into your spiritual life? Have you lost that consistent love for the Lord? Has that secret sin that used to bother you become a pet sin now that doesn't really bother you at all? Do you feed it every day? Have you lost your love for the lost? Is your soul drying up? Is it decrepit? And yet you think yourself strong. Does the word of God no longer prick you? When you open it up, is it as dry as a desert to you? When you think about God, does he warm your heart? Or are you as cold as a stone? The result of this is 7 verse 8. It says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. That's a graphic description of a people who have lost their first love. It describes a cake that's put in an oven, and it doesn't get turned, and so one side gets scorched, and the other side is raw. You're ultimately useless. That's what happens to people who are consumed with pride, unwilling to repent and seek the Lord again. The fourth truth, after finding out that judgment is for the proud, we lastly see that God's mercy is for those who have real repentance. Look at chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. That's likely a description of language that Israel could have used to describe their repentance. Let us return to the Lord, knowing that he would heal us, bind us, revive us, raise us up that we might live before him. Let us know him. You hear the language of repentance there. The fact that repentance is an option is a display that God has mercy. If you look up at chapter 5, verse 15, it says, I will return again to my place. Meaning, it's still the metaphor of a lion who has gone out and taken its prey and it goes back to its lair. And it says that God is going to stay in that place with his prey until, and that's the key verse, until, until. I will return again to my place until, until what? Until, They acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. 
And then we read that text from 6, 1 through 3. And it gives us language of people who are seeking the Lord, who are expecting his healing, who say, let's go and know the Lord. But right after this is verse 4. It says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. That's important because it pictures Israel like a people who has a moment of love, but then it dissipates and the love is gone. And 6, 1 through 3 is great language, but something key is missing. There's something missing there. Oh, they want to seek the Lord. Oh, they want to know the Lord, but there's something that's missing. Do you know what it is? God will stay in his lair until they acknowledge their guilt. You see in 6, 1 through 3, what's missing? There is no acknowledgement of guilt. Oh, it's so easy for us to go to the Lord. We might admit our sorrow. We might admit to him our grief. We might admit our discomfort under the discipline we're experiencing. We might admit our mistakes. We might admit our needs. We might admit our weakness. We might admit a lot of things to the Lord. We might even go with great emotions to him. We might have a a flare of love in the morning for him. Our heart might soar up to him with a song of praise, how great thou art, and we feel this great emotional draw to the Lord. We might remember his great promises, oh, that he would heal us and bind us up, oh, that he would be my God and that I would be his people, oh, that his rain would come like the spring rain and refresh me, and we might remember how great and good God is, and that's all good and wonderful, but there's something missing from that. And it's one of the hardest parts until they acknowledge their guilt. The whole irony of it is you are guilty before God until you admit your guilt, and then God forgives you through Jesus Christ and opens the door of paradise to you. So my friends, real repentance has to step away from pride, has to reckon seriously with God's wrath, has to know also that God is merciful, but who is he merciful to? Oh, those who admit their guilt. Do you know that you're guilty Apart from Christ, do you know that you've sinned against him? Are you willing to agree with God that when he says something is sin, it is sin? There are no excuses, no ifs, and, or buts. It's sin. If you acknowledge that, oh, it may be the hardest thing you ever have to say. But if you acknowledge that and you turn to Jesus Christ, knowing that he died for sinners like you, as guilty as can be, he takes away all of your guilt. Admit your guilt, and you're not guilty. Wonderful news. Repentance isn't a dirty word. It's a great gift. Turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, your word is just so clear about what you expect from us. We thank you, Lord, that you would even hold out yourself to us, merciful and kind and ready to forgive and pardon our sins. Lord, if there's anything that we are holding on to, 
any sin that we know about that is unconfessed, Father, I pray that you would draw that to the surface, that we might admit our guilt before you and find full fellowship and reconciliation with you through Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die on behalf of sinners. May we repent and turn to him. Father, we know that even though there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and what great news, still every day we fall short. And may we live a lifestyle of repentance, Lord, that turns to you in faith. May we confess our sins and find that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, may we not turn to worldly solutions, keep us from pride. Lord, would you make us humble? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.